Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cloud-Based Mayhem. This show is with Dylan Benedetti, and we recorded this the first time before I left for the X-Alps back in May, and then submitted it all to Miles, and the sound wasn't good enough. I didn't pick that up when we were doing the recording, so we had to do it again. So this is take two. I think this one's a lot better, so that worked out anyway. And that was what caused a little bit of the delay, which we are hopefully now caught up with. So I apologize for the missing show after the after the X-Alps, but hopefully we're all caught up with our regularly scheduled programming, a show every two weeks. A little bit of housekeeping before we get into this one. Just wanted to remind you all, I said this in the last show, but that we've got this really cool hike and fly race and adventure class and pro class coming up in late September, October, early October at the Red Rocks Fly-In, Red Rocks X. It's $5,000 prize money for the winner of the pro class, which will be 30 participants in that one if we fill it all up. More information on Quasa.com, C-U-A-S-A.com. And we're hopefully by the time this is out, we'll have a website and more information there. But you can always reach out to me if you need anything else with that. Proves it's going to be an awesome event and uh, in a beautiful part of the world. And it'll be a lot of fun. So hope to see you all out there. This show with Dylan, I did some acro training with Dylan in conjunction with him giving one of his SIV courses out of Lake Berryessa in California. He's got a fascinating history. He's Italian, started flying in Italy way, way, way back when, spent a bunch of years in Morocco under the tutelage of Toby Cologne, who I've also spent a bunch of time flying with back in the day. And then he spent years and years, I think seven years or more, out in Nepal training acro and flying tandems and and then he came back to the States and got married, had some kids and became, well, he started this in Nepal, but became an SIV instructor under the tutelage of the whole APPI system. And I was super impressed with what I saw out there and how he runs things and his toe techs and his approach to SIV is just is, is awesome. It's really, really terrific. And so I wanted to get him on the show to talk about a little bit about his history, but just about risk homeostasis and uh, conflict of interest with instructors and selling gear and some of the holes we've dug ourselves in here in the states under our system of training and coaching and lack of i guess uh, compared with other parts of the world and sib and maneuvers and a whole bunch of stuff i think you'll enjoy this there's a lot here and we had a lot of fun with this talk please enjoy dylan benedetti Dylan, uh, take two, buddy. This is it's great to have you back again on the show. I know we did this before I left for Europe, and this will just be tighter. We had some had some sound problems with that one, so we're gonna. We're gonna this is awesome. I get a chance to do this all with you yet again, and it's it's good to see your smiling face. I know you've been doing these courses all summer. Uh, the first one was with the first one this season was with, with Ben and I, and you had a whole big gaggle of students and we'll get into how awesome that was. Uh, and it ended up saving my life as you know. And, but yeah, I wanted to just introduce you to the audience before we get into all the topics we're going to cover and give us a little bit of your background, your, you, how you learned's pretty fun. And then how you've spent your time since when you learned is pretty fun. And now you're out in California, even though you're, you're Italian, you must be chasing a good pizza out there. 
Well, first, like again, thank you for rehaving me. I guess because stay two, and uh, it's it's always a pleasure and an honor to be part of this great platform that you have. And and thanks for everything you do because it's just insane. Um, I'll mention my my part of the thanks for for what changed me and the way I I I approach what we do and what I do personally. So, but we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk about that later. And, um, and it's great to see you and your smile back after the race that that kept me <laughs> glued to that screen. As I told you, that phone call, my probably my screen time went up uh, close to an high school girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was like unbelievable. I was like waking up in the middle of the night just to check. But yeah, that was that was pretty great, man. Thank you. Uh, so how this started? Well, it started in 2008 when I was taking this um, break or sabbatic, whatever, from my my old job. I was working as a as a war photographer for the UNICEF, and um, I was kind of losing it in a way. I was like pushing myself too too hard, I guess, and I needed a break. So I went to the Alps in Italy and um, started working with cows and horses. Anything that kept me away from um, from the past uh, work environment was good. And and then one day I saw this guy. I was walking a horse with a little girl on it. I was working for these people that had horses. They used to do walks with uh, with kids. And I, I remember I was walking this little girl on the horse, and I I looked up and I see this guy that coming in the middle of the valleys. You know that valley is the the Valtournanche in Italy, where. Yes. You got the matter and the, the Trevino right up top, like in between this mountain, just I comes just, up. Just and, flew over it a little yeah. over a week ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now I'm jealous. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And so I was walking her and I saw this glider. It was an acro glider. I didn't know how obviously back then. And that's and it was Andrew uh, sorry, Anthony Green, one of the Acro Twin brothers from mm. California. But, and he started doing Ellie's. Uh, well, now I know what he was doing, but back then I was like, whoa, what is that? Uh, <laughs> I want to do that. And I remember walking straight to the, the owner of the horses and just with this little girl, I, I gave him the horse and I said, just, I got to go. And I went to see Anthony at the landing. And I'm like, what, what is this? What, what is this thing you're doing? I want to do this. And the instructor was there. The, the local school instructor was there. So in probably 30 minutes, we had a, an agreement that he, he was going to teach me flying and I was going to make cocktails for him in, in this bar that he had at the landing. So it was like all set up. And the day after, he gave me an old glider and, and a harness. And, and that's kind of how it started. It was pretty fast, yeah. But... Um, but I probably I made a mistake because I said I from I, from the beginning I said dude I, that's what I want to do what he does I want to do what this guy was doing you know and that that probably didn't <laughs> didn't set the tone right because <laughs> he was uh, he was pretty scared and he kept me on the ground for for a good ten months without letting me go to takeoff and I was just allowed to kite and that's what I did ten months kiting kiting I was there six seven eight hours a day i remember having this huge bruise on my chest like it was just like purple green and yellow the chest strap was like i was pushing and pushing wind no wind no rain but yeah i, I was there a lot let's say yeah and, and then after 10 months he kind of had to so he brought me up uh, did my first flight there and uh, 
and it started going fast. I was flying like eight, nine times a day. You know, this place is a, a probably 25 minutes ride to take off. And when you take off, if you go in the middle of the valley, you have 800 meters like, um, height that you can burn, like doing spiral, trying wing overs, and trying to, to do everything that, uh, that performance flying. <laughs> and Jockey showing that DVD, <laughs> they were like fixing my DVD recorder for, for, and my DVD player for months. Uh, and, and yeah, and then whatever from there, there's, Oh, winter came, and uh, and somebody said, "Oh, like so Morocco is flyable." And I lived in Morocco before. I speak the language, so oh, I remember in two days I bought the tickets for Morocco, moved to Morocco for the winter, and start flying again seven, eight hours a day, nonstop until until I met Toby. And Toby is that Toby Columbia that you know mm -hmm. uh, is the one that probably. <laughs> probably made all of this happen in a way because uh, he pushed me to go against uh, the the thing that I was that I would never imagine I was going to do it was teaching paragliding I was from the beginning when I was seeing all my friends with the radio staying on the ground teaching people uh, I was like nope that's not what I want to do that's I'm never going to be an instructor I want to fly I don't want to be the guy on the ground with the radio nope told toby when they gave me a job and that's kind of where 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 this started you know i spent a, i think a good couple of years going back and forth and back and forth from morocco because it was easy access from italy it was like 30 dollars plane ticket and then um i was getting more and more into acro and this when i started doing LEs over the ground i i tossed four times Four reserve toss in Morocco, over the ground, away from hospital, and I got lucky. Four times I was like, I landed on my feet. Um, even, even the time when I throw reserve went straight in my line, and I had to pull those bridles to get it open, and then it opened probably similar to your case. It opened. I I felt the opening, and this, the in a fraction of a second, I hit the ground in my. Jeez. Standing up, I was like this soft patch and like freshly uh, worked from farmers, I guess. And um, and that, yeah, that day was the day where at the dinner table, somebody started talking about this place in Nepal with the lake, good for acropilot. And I didn't know anything about it. It was like, so I went to see the guy after dinner. I'm like, well, what was that place again? You you were poke, poker or something like that. And he goes, yeah, this place in Nepal. I mean, it's not really high over the lake, but there's a lake. There's a lot of acropilot there. And it's like, it's just crazy. I'm like, okay. And so they after went to Marrakesh and bought a plane ticket for Nepal. And boom. Soon enough, I was, uh, I think I went back to Italy and then, then left for Nepal. Yeah, I went, to, yeah, I went back to Italy. And then left for Nepal, yeah. So, and was Nepal you? You were you were making a living there. You were doing tandems. Yeah, well, initially, which actually, I think it was just for two weeks, and then I stayed for oh. seven years. And, wow. uh, but um, I didn't have it. I just had my acroglider with me, and then staying there, made some really good friends. One of them, Peter Wolf, and uh, he's the one that actually gave me my first job as a tandem pilot. It was like, um, and. I, <laughs> 
ever thankful for that because it was started a kind of a crazy life you know the, back then poker was still the the golden age we were making a lot of tandems there were not so many schools there were like six structure i think now there's mm. probably around 80 uh mm. with six pilots each so six yeah. six schools with six pilots each we're going up and down and we were making a lot of money I mean, for a country where with $500, you leave like a king. We sometimes $5,000 a month, $6,000 a month, Jeez. plus pitcher money. It's, it's just insane. You need nothing to leave. And uh, so you, you can even put away money, which was the first for me. I was like, wow, look at this. I have money on the side. <laughs> like, how right. did this happen? And yeah. Wow. And um, yeah, that's where... With Bella was there, Jamie, a lot of people that you know. So it was it was seriously the golden age. It was like just amazing. And not that it's not amazing now, but it's it's changed. It's not it's not the same now. It's like plus with the airport coming. But your passion then was still very much acro. You weren't you weren't really yeah. into XC yet like you are now. It was, it was acro and tandems and well, yeah, I mean, my XC glider was my tandem, you know, yeah. I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't have enough money or if I probably, I, maybe I had the money, but I never thought about buying an XC because when I went, when I was now doing tandem, I was up and down doing acro. So before tandem was acro or if in between tandem, there was a hole in the schedule and it was like, they needed only five pilots instead of six. I'd go up with the Jeep and do acro and it was just like acro, 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 acro the pre-infinity so when you when you put in your head that you want to learn infinity it's like that that's what you do you know mm. <laughs> you, you like you lose your brain out of it and, and yeah and that's 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 slowly slowly tandem after tandem and then then david arufat that is uh, which is the the owner is my mentor and uh it's thanks to him if i'm an sv instructor today because uh, um he asked me if i wanted to become an sav instructor now i already had my my comp results with uh with uh, with the championship in italy and i had my uh instructor license with the appi already he's actually david rufat is the founder of appi he created the, the entire system and uh, then it became too big for him to be able to actually follow the entire thing but he started it you know, mm. and he started it in nepal so um, mm. Coming back from that comp, he asked, yeah, everything started in Nepal with him. And uh, it's this uh, instructor from Switzerland and uh, acro pilot and SAV instructor and acro training from Switzerland that lived in Nepal for many years. Actually, he was one of the first with Adam Hill and um, Frontier Park Lining, which back then had another name. I think it was Sunrise and then uh, they split. But um, that's those two, him and Adam, are, they kind of started everything in Nepal. And, and David started at PPI and he asked me if I wanted to become an SAV instructor. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I started studying with him and following him around for SAV and slowly, slowly got me. Him and, um, and Matthew Bram, also a French instructor, really good uh, SAV instructor and acropilot. Him and Sabrina, his wife, they... They helped me a lot, and they they are my mentor. They are they they taught me everything I knew back then, you know, and, and got me into this. So it, I started doing SIV the that, for them. I was just gonna say one of the things that really caught me in watching you operate and watching your your courses and your students was the 
I mean, I, I remember watching Jockey with this too. It's that there's so much happening that you guys seem to be ahead of. You know, you, you're you can predict what's going to happen before it actually happens. And it, in talking to Logan, one of your toe techs and very keen pilot who's over chasing in Europe right now, he just competed in the Eiger. Um, he talked about it that it's just it's so much observation. You know, what you get from being a toe tech and towing people all day, every day, over and over again, all summer, is being able to just observe. You know, I I can understand the maneuvers, but to see it and tell people what they're doing, you kind of have to be ahead of the game the whole time. And it seems like a, it seems like you really have to spend, I guess, years, right? Just observing, just watching it, you know, being kind of the low guy on the totem pole or girl on the totem pole and, and doing the towing or doing the observation or running the boat, running the rescue boat. Um, how much of it is it just watching versus you being an acro pilot and doing these maneuvers over and over again? I guess it's a combo of both, but. Yeah, I, I guess it is. I guess it is. Most of it is watching. And also like, it, it's, it's true that like most of the time when I, I tell the student that they're going to have a collapse before that happens. Uh, a couple of seconds before, because you see what is going to lead to a collapse, you know, okay, you're late. It's going to collapse, stands up and one, two, bomb, collapse, you know? So that's, that's kind of, you know, I always say that it's like, I, it's very addictive for me because I think I do get in some um, mild flow state when I coach. Mm. That's why 15, when I get the 15 second signal and nobody's allowed to talk to me and, and probably that's why I love it so much, but yes, observation and there's some kind of mirror mirroring involved for sure. I mean, the fact that I did in the past that I went through that, all that learning process with like and the mistake and errors that are somehow um, imprinted in my subconscious, mm. that helps a lot when it comes to watching someone doing um, something, especially when they do it wrong, like knowing what's going to happen and, and, and be ahead. And if it's something that needs correction, that instead of just go say, oh, I mean, if it's if you know it's going to have a little frontal, you just go, hey, it's going to have a collapse, just go and zap. But if something that needs immediate, like like go full break, stop it, so like low lock your elbow, break towards it. If you have to stop an auto rotation, it's it's then you have an, a different input. But but you do you do see and know what's going to happen ahead of like mm. way before it happens. Actually, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you you had things stacked up really quite well. That the I'm sure you weren't thinking about it back then when you were in Nepal practicing acro. But it's, I mean, it it doesn't seem like it's it's not riding a bike. It's not it's not something that you can just okay. I've been flying for ten years. I can be an SIV instructor. You've got to have a certain set of. You've got to have the observation time. You've got to have the maneuvers. You know, just down. You've got to have you know, and that. That means being an acro pilot to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I remember when first I came to the to the US, I was like, and I was seeing that several people doing clinics with um no acro background, not being certified because the system here, I mean, there's no that still now it doesn't it doesn't exist. And uh, even if you by now are like pretty um Initially, I thought. I think I heard you also say, "Hey, Yushpa is this like that? Yushpa is discouraging people from taking an SIV," and that's what I heard and thought at the beginning. You know? 
And lately, especially last year with COVID, when we were kind of struggling to get back at work and uh, Marty and other uh, from the USPA were incredibly helpful. They sent letter to the BOR explaining what I do and wow, it's so vital that I'm up there mm-hmm. at the lake doing it. So it was, it, it was, it was pretty impressive what they do. And, mm-hmm. and it changed my, 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 my idea on it. You know, I did, I, I thought it was like, uh, Oh no, don't go for an SAV. It's dangerous, you know, liability. And, and also like, Again, looking around and seeing people with the, with the toe and with, with the winch uh, and the boat doing clinic without any acro background I was like, well, that that's that's not right, you know. And um, if you go to Fabian, if you go see Fabian and and you want to become an SAV instructor, I mean, the exam you have to do tumbling. If you can tumble, you can probably not pass. You're not going to become wow, an SAV instructor. That's awesome. Well, I mean. It's there's a reason. It's, it's the the way I see it is, if I have to send send someone to learn P one P two to learn paragliding in general, I want to send like my sister, for example, to to someone that did himself at least a thousand takeoff and a thousand landing, right? Sure. So sure. if I want to send if I want to send my my little sister to learn stalls, I will try to send her to someone that did a thousand stall himself, and that's I mean, yeah. Only Acropilot doesn't that many stall. You know, we're not talking about the magic number, hundred stall, two hundred stall. No, we're talking about thousands of stalls. You know, it's yeah. like we do stall to enter early, to exit infinity, to 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 recover from a mactus. We like we're we're stalling all the time. So yeah, but again, well, that's a good, that's a good Dylan. That's a good transition. Uh, you before we started talking about you, there were some subjects that you really wanted to cover, and this seems like a really important one and that's standardized training you know to me especially this part of the world north america your training is 100 percent dependent on who you go to i mean there's no there is no syllabus like the appi offers that is you're going to do this and then you're going to learn this and then you're going to learn this and this is why this is why these things are important. It's totally dependent on, you know, do I go to Dylan or do I go to somebody else? I'm going to learn completely different, maybe not totally different things, but, um, you know, the emphasis is going to be different, the maneuvers, the order that you get taught them in. Uh, and I'm, and not just SIV, I'm talking P1, everything, you know, from yeah. everything. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's difficult. Okay, so we are in a, we are with paragliding so small still in the U.S., and there is an effort to grow the sport, and probably because we want the sport to grow, uh, we are we are sacrificing um, quality over quantity in a way. Um, what happened? So what you're saying makes sense. Like I remember, uh, I heard someone probably was. You it was on the show with you, and I thought that guy was super smart because he say, "Hey, when he came down, when he came down to choose where to go and where to learn." So I did my research. I found out which one were the three best pilots in the U.S. or five best pilots in the U.S. Then I I did another research and trying to find out where did they learn, and I came up with only two schools, and I chose one of the two. That was like, whoa, that's pretty smart, you know, mm. but it should not be that way. No, you, you should, know? Go to it should not and learn how to drive. 
<laughs> exactly. And so every structure, I mean, then obviously there's the, the big school, but with the big name, the guy that owns the school that is like smart enough to surround himself with, uh, with good instructor instructors. And, uh, that's always going to happen now, even in country where they have a standardized training, but the thing with what happened here and what I think is just, I heard you saying also a lot of times that because, and, or, people asking uh, why the Swiss and the French, why they're so good. And, uh, and obviously when we ask that question is we're comparing it to us in the U.S. Obviously, why are, why are they so good compared to us? Because we can't compare it to anybody else. We, I mean, that's what the, that's what we have at hand. That's what we can see. And, um, and the answer is often, oh, the Swiss have the money and the French have the coaches. But it's not. So in France, for example, and uh, I'm going to say sorry for this because I know my wife and some of my friends will start drinking because every time they think I say Europe is better than the U.S., now they have this drinking game on it. So, But in France, in France, um, to become an instructor, a paragliding instructor, um, first to apply, you need competition results. You need two comps where you rank yourself in the first turn and you know comps in france yeah, they're like I mean, high level okay. in other words you're an epically good pilot exactly right to there. start I mean, with to, to do that in france you're an epically good pilot and pa- i mean you have passion you have everything you have motivation yeah. you have like commitment. you chase it you get and the hours you're chasing yeah. it exactly yeah. so once you have the comps once you have the, the comps result then you can apply and if they accept your application you enter the school and it's uh, 10 months mandatory working in a school with no payment. Okay, so you need a bank loan, obviously, because you need to pay for your for your bills. And it costs you around probably ten to $15,000. And every weekend or sometimes every other weekend, you have a college grade exam organized by the, the government. It's like the secretary of sports, you know, la jeunesse, le, le ministère de jeunesse des sports. It's like, it's it's the same thing for mountain guides, river guides, ski instructors. Mm. They all go through the same process. And actually, the, 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 the initial part of the studying, it's the same for everybody. And then uh, you, you choose your branch. You go for, again, river guide, mountain guide. You know? Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's like becoming months, an IFMGA guide. It's, it's a lifetime. It's a career. It's, it's not something you just do half-ass. You know, it takes massive commitment, both time-wise, money-wise, talent-wise. Yeah, it's, it's a totally and different... It's, and at the end, what that brings is that no matter if you're, if you're the guy that wants to learn paragliding, instead of having to go through that process that that, that very smart guy, I think, <laughs> went through, I mean, no matter which school you hit, you're going to have an instructor that has the same background and is as knowledgeable as the school next door. Then it comes down only to um, personality. To personality. it's like you like the guy. Yeah. It goes with who you are. You stay. You don't. You go to the next one. Okay. But it's not gambling. You know. It's not yeah. like you when you don't know better. It's it 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 turns this thing in into it, it's 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 pretty it's gambling. You know. It's not Russian exactly. roulette. Yeah, I mean here here it is literally to me it's it Russian roulette because you're you're aviating, you're playing with gravity in the ground and you're literally okay, does this barrel have the bullet? <laughs> well, exactly. Well, well then again, if the, depending on who you are, you might be able and that's that 
this so think about it in the u.s probably you need one week uh when you do your instructor clinic your basic instructor clinic so you do one week probably or a weekend probably a little more than a weekend and then you have to do a little apprentice and you can become an instructor and not long after that you can open a school and start selling gears and so for that what you need i think is a p3 no tandem license and no siv experience so you never did an siv you don't have a tandem license and um uh, two weeks before you were whatever let's not go that far i think oh let's be nice but i mean and it's um it's not to blame them it's not to blame this this young uh instructor that are just like passionate and they try and what's what's the reasoning behind it it's like oh but if we want to grow the sport we need we need to make it easy to become an instructor so we can have more and and spread it spread this thing that we love so much but i think by doing that well Again, it's like we're sacrificing quality over quantity, you know. Yeah. It's like, and and it doesn't seem right to me. Most I <laughs> I joke about it the SIV with students. Like most instructor in the United States probably don't have an SIV, never did an SIV, and so when I have a P two with twenty hours, uh, the second he goes back home, he'll have probably more experience than his own instructors. And the other thing is, like, uh, if you remember when you started flying, you fall in love with the guy that taught you yeah. how to fly. I mean, um, you, uh, it's, it's normal. This is like, they, they, this guy just taught you how to fly. It's the coolest thing you've ever done with your life. Even if you had crazy experience with your life, this is pretty cool. So mm. it's difficult to question them. It's difficult not to put them on the pedestal. It's difficult to start even looking around and start comparing what you're getting with what you should be getting. So, um, and especially again, if there's this, if there's an, a community that is being created around this, and now finally, for probably the first time in your life, you feel that you belong to some something, and it, there's there's a lot that goes with it. You know, it's 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 pretty. I think we should, but as um, the fact that we say, oh, but it's so small in the U.S. that we have to grow it, and so this is the way to do it, and we can't put too many rules. Uh, I think, again, the fact that we aren't in in such a young nation, uh, as we have the responsibility to look at others and do better. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think think the numbers – back all this up. I mean, we get, we attract lots of people to the sport. This is yeah. going to be your next thing. And then they all leave it. And the reason they all leave it is because they're getting shit instruction and they get scared and the attrition handles the growth. You know, it just cuts it yeah. right off. We get the same number of people flying in the States now that we did 10 years ago. The gliders are better the sites are better. You know, we know a lot more, we got better weather apps. We've got everything's on our side to attract more people to the sport, but it doesn't happen. But well, like I said, the attrition takes care of the growth. And so, um, it's not working. So if it's not working, you got to change it. I think it will. I think it will. I think it will. Cause, um, I, I, I ask questions, you know, like, why is it like this? And then you hear, oh, it's because there's some old glider pilot in the Yushpa board that they refuse to change stuff, to 
to set rules and um and then obviously you end up always hearing uh which this is not just the u.s this is everywhere when you talk to whole school pilots and uh, the freedom and oh then if you put too many rules like mandatory license then you you affect the freedom of the free flights and um and i always um uh, I always answer to that with, because um, even in France, I mean, France, we'd always said about France, there's no mandatory license. In France, you can go and buy a, your glider on eBay and pay for the um, third party insurance and you can go fly it. Hmm. You don't need, it's the license is not required. But everybody goes to a school because they all know people that come from the school. They know that the, the system is so good and the instructors are so good. They, why would you do it by yourself? I mean, yes, there right. are those that right. don't have the money and they have a good friend that is a pilot instructor or even just a good pilot and they'll learn. And it's not that everybody goes to a school, obviously, but freedom. When we start talking about that, I mean, if, you, if you're not properly trained, if you don't know what you're doing, now, every time you fly, now I'm not free. Yeah. Because exactly. you're dangerous and you put me in danger, okay? Yes, you're by yourself. Yes, yes, it's, it's, you're the pilot in command. You're an it's an individualistic sport, but we fly together. And if oh, the only mistake that I made today is to take off after you, and now I'm below you in the terminal, I'm going to pay for your, for your mistake. You know, if you have a collapse and you enter and you go into an auto and you fall into my glider, when we're close to the to the terrain and stuff. So your freedom should stop when mine starts. And if you're a dangerous pilot, probably you're affecting my own freedom. So it's like if we want if that's an argument that can that we can bring to this freedom thing, uh, the free flight spirit, I I, I, mean, not I love the idea. I love the idea, but not yeah, not really. Yeah. No. So why why let's wrap the the initial thing up. Well, why do we lose so many pilots? Is it that? Is it is it, why is the attrition rate so high? Because it's also really high in things like kite surfing that are much less risky. It used to be very risky. The, the initial kites and everything were a lot more dangerous. But you know, it's it's kind of the same there. You 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 learn it. You fall in love with it. It's super awesome. It's amazing. You know, you're using the wind. Uh, to power yourself along, and then inevitably the attrition rate is really high. You know, you you blow a knee. I mean, the, the accidents are different in kite surfing. They're not nearly as extreme as, as paragliding because you're not you're not you're on the water typically, and you're not using you know gravity is not such a killer. But is it injuries? Is it fear? Is it uh, something that scares people, or is it something else? Is it just lack of training? So I, I think it's a bit of everything. Let's let, I, I want to start with the, um, the optimistic one. And the optimistic one, I think, because I thought I spent time thinking about it. So, so what can we do to change this? You know, I think part of it is just human nature. Okay, A lot of the students that come into paragliding, they're just like uh, testing things in life. Mm. You know, you know, you do something, you think you like Try it, this. you fall in love with it, and then... You get bored, you want to do something else, and now you do kite surfing. You know? So we go through phases. We all did. Huh? We are, so it's like mm -hmm. when, we, when you grow up, you're a teenager, you listen to heavy metal, and then uh, two months later, now you're, you grow dreadlocks, and you have a jambe on your, and you listen to reggae. You know? So it's like we do that. You know? It's part of who we are. So I think that a lot of people that come through the sport, they're just exploring, experimenting, and 
until they finally find what they love and stick with it, you know. Mm. But other reason for it is um, so another another thing that I think caused um, people to leave is we tend to um, probably again for the same reason we're trying to grow a sport so we don't want to scare people um, and we tend to keep the danger of it hidden. Mm. You know when people first start we're not being in straight school, with people in a sense. Exactly. And when people start, you're not allowed to mention a uh, word like accident, crash, uh, uh, death or danger, you know, because otherwise you scared them away. So I don't think that's right. I think uh, um, <clears throat> I think um, any adults that starts or even young, like younger people that starts, they should be put in a position where they can make an informed and smart decision. Uh, uh, before starting, before getting into this, there's no point of not talking about like the uh, accident. I mean, I'm all for it. Like, there's a time and a place to talk about accident. If we're going up on takeoff, or even if we're on takeoff, you're in the van, you start talking about crashing an accident. I'm the first one that tells the driver to stop it. Like, yeah, I will yeah, ask no, you to right leave yeah. the sheep. You know, there's like there's, mm-hmm. that. That's not that's not the right place or time. But when it, when you have a student. I think before they they invest time, energy, and money, they should be put in front of the reality. I mean, this is aviation, you know. And um, I don't know if it was Bill Buck or Mitch McLean in that podcast that said this thing. Every time you take it out of the bag, can kill you. Yeah. And probably not. That's not the right way to say it to a student that is about to start, or that is even trying that that is thinking about getting into paragliding. But I think the more honest we are. And the the better, mm. you know, we'll probably that will probably filter people instead of having them starring this thing, uh, falsely believing that they're safe because if you get a low B, you're safe. And then one day, once they start really like looking around and start seeing that people die doing this, or people can break their backs, or they have accident, or like you said, they twist their knee, they break their knee, they break an ankle, huh? And now they suddenly realize, like, oh, wait a minute, I don't want this in my life. Mm. This is this is not what I thought. This is not what I was like brought to believe. I mean, this thing is dangerous, and that's when they go, shit, I, I'm out, you know. And mm. so that's that's part of it. And and for those who don't uh, get to that point, I think what also could contribute to that is the is premature exposure to mm. condition that are not uh right for them yeah and what i mean i mean i don't know if you if you listen to that um podcast that judy judy moore had with this guy tony is a trained psychology and, and part right i learned a lot from him and i actually started using a lot of that uh, in my in my classes as when you first start this um when you are novice and you don't you, in a way, you don't speak the language. Any community, any community, paragliding community, ski, snowboard, they all have their own languages that goes with it, okay? Mm-hmm. So when you just enter this community, you're not absorbing in it, and you don't speak the language yet. And so, obviously, the second you start naming something, or you're like, you build a language around something, now the reality is, is a social, it's more of a socially constructive one. So we're not... 
um, the example that he gives, and I thought was brilliant, it's like a walker will walk on, on, on the edge, on the cliff, look down and see a place where he can fall and die. And the paragliding pilot, with an experienced paragliding pilot, from, will walk in the same spot and look down and see, <laughs> is it soarable? Is it, where are the trigger points? Is this place flyable? Where's like, I think it's, is there a house thermal here? You know, so again, it's all about that language, you know. So when you still do not speak the language and you're not, again, absorbing into this community, um, you... Uh, you go through turbulence, for example, that's what he said. You go through turbulence, which is terminals are turbulence for, for definition, and you you're uncomfortable. You know, you feel like you're like you're being like you're the victim of this incomprehensible dark forces that are like tossing you all over the place, you know. But uh, the way he put it down, it says I, I love that like I repeat this to my students all the time. It says terminals are like are an acquired taste. <laughs> like whiskey and cigarette, you know. Mm. As you remember your first whiskey? Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, like well, but then you force yourself mm -hmm. uh, because the older guy is saying the whiskey is good, and what do you do? You keep trying until you actually start. Oh, this is actually really good, you know. And yeah. the same thing with terminals. Now, in the community, the cross country pilot with higher status, with the reputation, or or even worse, the sky god. And so I'd like to talk about that once, but uh, say they're, they're all saying that terminals are great because they get you high up and then you can go cross country. So the, 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 the student that is even not being absorbed into this new language, into this new community, will force himself to suck it up and get used to terminal till mm. you actually learn how to use them and climb, you know, when, uh, when we, when doing that, I mean, there's there's no other way. I I think you 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 see it like me. I mean, to learn, you need to expose yourself to stronger and stronger condition, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's how we learn. We have no choice. If you always stay in laminar flow and uh, fly early in the morning and fly late in the day, you'll never learn. Um, what we just mentioned, but the problem is how fast are you going? How fast are you moving that bar? Okay. Back to sport psychology, they often talk about the, the 4% rule. I uh, remember Mitch talking about that. And uh, since I know that you're into flow and flow state, and you probably read all the books that I read, and I went pretty deep into that rabbit hole, and I'm not out yet, you remember that one of the main components of a flow state is the balance between challenge and skills. Okay, Every time that what you're doing is above that line, it can easily turn into something that it's too much, overwhelming, frustrating, therefore dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, same thing when it's below. When it's below, it's, it could be boring, destructive, and same thing, it's dangerous, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So if we if we don't move that bar uh, slow enough, we'll end up by putting people in that position. Yeah. Uh, where what they're going through, what they're experiencing is too much and it's frustrating and it's overwhelming and dangerous. Okay. But, and even without uh, end up having an incident or an accident, it's, it could be enough for them to say, fuck this, you know, mm -hmm. I'm out, you know, I don't want this. How, how can we not do that? That's the tough one. Because put yourself in, in the school shoes as an instructor that has like maybe five people coming through at the same time for the program P1, P2, and they're all done with their like seven to 10 days at the hill. They all did their, their 25 flights, but we're all different, right? Mm -hmm. 
we're all different because we have different experience, different um, different things we did in the past. We, I think we talked about when we were up at the lake, you know, when you have like cross-referencing from your past, like kayaking or like mm. rock climbing or Floyd sports in general, you know, this might be a little easier for you to learn, you know. And when yeah. you don't, it might take a little longer. So you always have like five, six people that are done with the program at the same time. And now it's time for the mountain flight. You know, and you bring them up to take off. It's always difficult to point a finger and say, hey, uh, yeah, not you. Today is good for you, good for you, good for you, but not for you. Mm. Uh, it's, 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 it's tough. You know, we're dealing with ego. We all have one. And actually, paragliding, I think we're, we, we top the world <laughs> when it yeah. comes to ego. We, we, yeah. We're pretty good at it. Yeah. And so it's gone. I don't know if there's actually a, like a, a, a way to do that, you know. Because literally, when you are in that position, when again we don't speak the language, you're not observing the community. You're fragile in the sense that anything that happens to you, the lack of understanding that's if you miss, if you can uh, analyze what happened uh, and understand it completely, well, that's when you run into the risk of getting traumatized. Mm. And uh, and we all know how difficult it is, how easy it is to imprint the trauma, like a negative experience in your subconscious, and how difficult it is to get it out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, and then 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 you start dealing with the old brain, and, and it's, it's it's a lot more difficult. So so that's probably also one of the the reason why we lose so many people. You know, yeah. I heard some numbers that was I don't know what to trust when it comes down to numbers. It's just like eight out of ten they leave after three months, four months. And like, yeah, which is they, similar. I think it's eight or nine out of ten kayaking. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's that high for for kite surfing. But you know, the when I learned how to kayak, it was mid nineties, and I think I went through with thirteen other paddlers, and we all learned. You know, we did the pool, and we did the theory, and we went out and paddled some class two stuff. A year later, I was the only one that was still paddling. You know, that, that, everybody else insane. had dropped out, and it was in every one of them was fear. Every single one of them had gotten in a situation, gone upside down, freaked them out. I mean, no, nobody got hurt that I know of. Nobody died. It was just, you know, it was just it was it went from fun to scary, and uh, and that was it. And then we're done. Yeah. Well. Uh, I remember when, so when you were up at the lake, you had to leave because you had your plane. But as, at the end of every class, I started probably a couple of years ago. I say to all students, because most of them, you, I mean, you were up there, you saw like there's a lot of people with five hours, 10 hours, and they yeah. do great. It's oh, just it insane how good it was they awesome. do. Yeah, this, it was awesome. Yeah. It's, again, no, par- no bad habits, no parasite, no like. Yeah. Not too much YouTube or power waiting yeah. talks, so they're not just they're not com- fresh they're not slates. contaminated. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they do it, they do it. But at the end of the clinic, I always I always say, hey, if you do when you go home, if you do go through something that scares you, there's some in anything that you don't understand, just call me, call me. And I started as like as my little contribution to this, like to stop people from getting to the point where they're hitting their head against the wall, they don't have anybody to explain exactly what happened to them. Because again, once you once you have a full understanding, once you can analyze it, it you can skip getting traumatized. You can go totally. around, you know, like yep. not fall into the hole, into the yep. hole and, and go. And, you know, it started as a, as a, like something that I threw out there. And today, I mean, I spend probably five, six hours every week when I'm not at the SIV talking to people on the phone. 
Mm. And um, and uh, I, I, you, when you had your 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 accident or come pilots, even like pilots that didn't do my class, but they heard from a friend that that I do that. They called, yeah. say, hey, dude, I know I didn't do an SIV with you, but this happened to me. It's like, and again, I was I'm obviously not being there. I didn't see it, but with their recollection and and which again go for to remember it you need to have um i don't know if you remember when you first told me about the accident uh the first thing that i captured from your recollection was the slow motion part when you said Mm -hmm. that i was like yes we have a lot to work with you know Mm -hmm. because you're an experienced pilot so you went to the uh, frame freeze you were in flow so elongated time and you you remember like in Everything. slow motion rapid. So we have all yeah, small right. details that can add. actually, you remember we put the, the pieces together. It was like, mm-hmm. ah, okay, when you told me the way you reached for the reserve and where you looked at right after you had a collapse, it was like, great, you know. But someone that just started this don't have that, you know. Sure. And re- if often after an accident, if you go see a, a, a novice and, and a pilot that is not that experienced, when you ask them, they can remember everything went too fast you know so at that point what i do i ask them to um give me the names of people that saw the accident and i made a few phone calls and i get all the feedback from people from witnesses and with that information i call the guy or girl back and we go through the entire understanding mm-hmm. process you know to the analysis and yeah, this think, is why this happened lack of understanding is really scary you know i think that I would have gone to the ex-ops with, you know, a definite, definitely a fear injury if that, if none of that made sense, if it was just like, holy shit, holy shit. And then I threw my reserve, you know, but I remember everything. It it all made sense. It was just, okay, this happened, this happened. That's, and that's what I did to do it. And I stayed active and then I threw, and then I hit the ground. It was all, it all made sense. It was all, okay. My training took over and, you know, was in a bad spot and, and, but it all worked out but I knew why it worked out. And that, that's, that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. In your case, I don't know if you remember, but that the, the little details, when I asked you, yeah. did you see the collapse? And when you said yes, then I knew why you went into an auto, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not the collapse itself. It's like, I remember you talking to Mal, which I, I, I love that podcast. I listened to it probably three, four, or even more, five times. And he was mentioning about like how we have to struggle as an SIV instructor to get, um, to fight this naturalist instinct that we have, like this trying to protect your back when you're, when you, you feel like you're falling out of the sky. And now what you're doing when you're doing that, you're pulling brakes. So you're overreacting and you're not getting out of situation. You're not using any of the exit windows because you're doing that. And the other one that we have to fight that I think it's even more important is that when we do have a collapse, if our first reaction is to look up, looking at the glider, we'll go with it. Because the glider, the collapse itself creates enough drugs for you to start, for for it to start turning. Mm -hmm. And if the glider starts turning, you looking at it, you go with it. I mean, if you can do it like a little visualization and and try, if you look up and the glider turns and you follow with your gaze, you're actually following it with your weight, with your body, and you go straight with it. That's a difficult one. 
Mm. That's that's something that mice I still do it myself. Yeah, I still yeah, I yeah, slap so. myself in the face every time I do that. It's like you idiot, you did it again. So then you you fly and you're like full on and slap, big whack, and you immediate. It's I mean we're flying this piece of plastic with a bunch of strings. It's normal that when it goes slap, you look at it, you know. Yeah. So training for that probably will take me forever but i hope one day i'll be able to you know and just stay yeah. focused on my heading lock my elbow if i need to and not look at the glider you know mm. yeah we'll have to it's hard to explain it in audio but it's the the whole blocking with the elbow and and bracing against the the flying side is uh i love that and that was a really awesome takeaway i'd never seen that i'd never heard that I've been practicing it since since you've showed that to everybody, but I think that's just describe describe that real quick. Let's see if we can do it without without visuals, because otherwise we'll 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 slap a video into the into the podcast where you can show it. But yeah, we can know. maybe even do it on the simulator once when we get together. I know you're going to come for our training, so. Uh, we can do that if you want. But ideally, it's like this uh, technique that we all learn. When we learn paragliding, they all say, oh, what do we do when you have a, if you have a collapse? Well, throw your body on the open side, right? Lean towards the open side, towards the flying side, okay? The problem with that is that when we fly, we do fly with this famous two pounds pressure or the, de the dead weights of your arms. And when you throw your body on the opposite side, you end up applying brake. Hmm. And now... Now you don't have a fully open glider. You have probably 50% remaining if you're lucky. If it's if it's more, it's even worse. But even a 50% remaining open glider, uh, the, 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 the wing loss changes, the stall speed changes, and the stall point changes. Mm -hmm. So if you throw your body carrying that much brake, uh, you're very close to stalling your glider at like at ribs level. You know, it's not under your seat anymore. It's not below your butt. It's like... But, at your ribs, you will stall that 50% remaining open glider. When we do lock our elbow against the riser and the vena with our fist against the riser, not pulling any brake, okay, we can do that. And it's immediately when you do that, you're fully weight shifted towards the open side without effort. You know, if you release the elbow, your weight shift, your weight shift goes back to neutral. So you're not like, you're not like struggling to keep that position. It's very easy. You remain in upright position. Your torso is straight. And the other advantage of, of that position is that you can always see and grab your reserve. If you have a collapse on the right and your reserve is on the right side, and now you throw your body on the left and you have to stay fully weight shifted to clear the turn to get ground clearance. It's first, it requires a lot of energy. Okay, so if it takes you a long time to get to a safe place where you can actually address the problem, uh, you'll be more tired. And, mm -hmm. and again, your visual, you, you can't really see around because you're fully weight shifted. Okay, and you're, you're far from your reserve. You know, it's like sometime in some extreme case where you need to be really fully weight shifted to, to keep it straight, you won't be able to grab your reserve. You know, and every time you go for it, every time you move your weight to go for it, you will straight yeah. you'll go straight into an auto in the, in the opposite side. But again, yeah, we'll we'll probably like do a little video, maybe if you want to put it that that will be that will be helpful, I think. Yeah. That, tell me, Dylan, you wanted to talk about why people choose certain gliders, which is worded differently than glider choice. We talk a lot about glider choice on the show, but I, I I have a feeling you're going to take this in a different direction. 
Um, yeah, why <laughs> glider choice? Yeah. So as this again, it's uh, I'm not the original. Huh? I took the 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 initially is the it's the same guys that sat down. Um, we we Judith again, and I I thought it was. And it was pretty interesting. And I started talking about it with my students. And I try, I, I started as an experiment with my student. I was just asking the question and it works. It works. And slowly, slowly, I see more and more people after a clinic. Um, they come to see me um, in private and they decide to, to downgrade, to step down, to step down a class or even two sometimes. Basically, I, I think there's a lot. If you, if what he says is if you ask a, a pilot, why did you choose this glider? Was that out of the performance? Did you look more into the performance or the safety aspect? They will all say safety. All of them. Okay. Only a few. Actually, I had a couple that said performance. Okay. I, I bought this for performance. Okay. But that's more advanced pilot. You know, they will choose like a, a Zeno instead of a Mero, whatever. The, what I tell them, what he actually says was, what's your biggest flight? What kind of flight do you achieve with your glider? And the numbers, well, it's 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 pretty stunning. It's like they could have achieved those glider not stepping down one class, but probably two or more. Yeah, on an you know, and yeah, exactly, exactly. So you're talking about safety. You choose that glider for safety, um, but when I look at the flights you do today. Well, you could be way safer because uh, I do think there's nothing safety in what we do uh, with with the little B or an A and looking at what you do. So I think it all comes down to to these rides, Sperling and, and saying that it all comes down to uh, ego and unfortunately for us, testosterone. Mm. Okay, so that puts us men's you know, paragliding pilot men's. Uh, in uh, in a worse position than women, because if you if you look if you notice, I started looking around and actually, I started noticing it's like, oh, that's right, this is actually happening. And you see, women's they do not do that. They just don't have. They don't rush through classes like we do, mm -hmm. and they have a different way of learning. It's Logan when we when we were driving, saying, yeah, they have. It's, it's more building block system that they put up and two pilots they start together a boy and a girl a man and a woman whatever you want to say after two years they might have the same skills the same level but he will be on a d with a pod and she will still be on the low b with an open harness and she's going bigger yeah she's doing almost every flights. time i've seen that all every the time, time. And then what you hear from the landing is, ah, she must be light. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, she's, she's higher than every. Oh, she's still up because she's light on that right, glider. It's like, right, no, right. dude, yeah. it's not. They, don't, I, they just don't do it. They just don't rush through it. And part of it, again, going back to the community, I, I'm all for paragliding community, okay? I think there's so many aspects of having a, a great paragliding community that are priceless, you know, the mentoring, the, the friendship, and even just sharing this thing that we love so much. But there's other side of it that are pretty dark, you know, it's like this, um, this peer pressure or the puppy syndrome, or even just like back, going back to what we were saying about the, the status of the cross-country pilot, you know, 
Uh, you hear even pilots, like beginner pilots, they say, yeah, but the XE pilots, you know, like if they were the separate uh, right. species, right. you know, they're called, they're being called the XE pilots, you know. And now also, now some people end up wearing their gear as a badge, as a label, you know. It's like probably because they don't want to be looked at as a beginner anymore because they're they were in a hope and harness with a low B. So now they want to rush. They want to be part of the cool guys. You know what I mean? You know, they want to the popular. Yeah. I almost feel like, and we've talked about this a lot on the show. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I, I almost feel like when, when you were phrasing it that way, I almost feel like this is, it's, it, it's really a community problem. It, it, yeah. I feel like, I feel like we're not rewarding, you know, it, it's the Bernie pestles, you know, that guy's throwing down 250, 300 FAIs on a mentor every year, you know, and they should be the ones, or Urs Hari, who I had on the show, same thing, you know, he decided when he stopped doing comps and he just didn't have enough time and he gets five, six big days a year now that yeah, he doesn't have the hours. He'd love to fly those gliders, you know, the hot end gliders, but he doesn't have the hours. So he kicks everybody's ass on a B and, yeah. and those should be the pilots that we I mean, look at Josh Cohn. He comes down and kicks everybody's ass on an on a low end EMD every year down in Valle because he's that good, you know. And I'm not saying, I mean, a low end EMD is not not the conversation we're having right now. But you know, it's it's uh, what I have always said and what I have observed is if you can't stay in the air in the air for ten hours on an ENB, you got no chance of doing it on an ENC. There's no way. And because staying in the air is all about observation. And if you can't observe because you're dealing with your wing, you're not going to stay yeah. in the air. And so the only way you're going to stay in the air is if you're so good and so confident on the wing that you're on and, and those skills have to align. It's not, you're not going to stay in the air longer moving up. That's not how the equation nope. works. It's opposite of nope. that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's almost, it, we should almost be, you know, celebrating the pilot who can kick everybody's ass on a low end B, you know? But in a way, we are. We are. Because we this are, is not yeah, right. right. We've been seeing this for years now. Pilot on, on B, like, kicking asses. and But we still have this. Because mm. probably, again, the status and, and again, wearing the black skirt, the big pod and everything and look cool and be part of the XC pilots now. It's more important than that, you know? Mm. And it's like, so that thing, what you were saying comes down to currency in a way, you know? It's, and uh, I used to like, give this talk about currency to my my students and make them understand that, yes, if they... If one day they realize because now they have a new job or, or a kid, they just got a kid, or they can't fly as much as they used to for any reason, uh, probably stepping down, downgrade one class, it's it's going to help them, you know, because mm. now they don't have uh, time to be current on the on the glider they're flying, you know, and. Um, it's that I have the students and very good friend. His name is Ron Davis. He's an airline pilot and it's been like, it's been coming to SAV a lot. And, and they're just like good friends. Me and Maria, him and his wife, Gigi, they're so helpful and they're just incredible human beings. But he taught me something. I mean, it probably doesn't, he doesn't know that he did last. He was up a couple of weeks ago and he said, so he's flying this, uh, um, 
oh, Fusion now, I think. Yeah, he's flying the Fusion now, which is a beautiful C machine, great glider. But he, and he was flying, uh, he had his old keyboard. So he kept his old glider, you know. And every time he doesn't have a chance to fly a lot and, and it's, he thinks that he's not current enough, well, what he does, because I usually used to tell my students, hey, let's say at the end of the season, you were flying in like rowdy condition, you were putting yourself in big air. Well, maybe you go through a winter break. You should not be like looking for the, those conditions. Uh, don't start where you left. Uh, yeah. Step down a little yeah. and choose like an easier day and slowly build up again confidence and everything you need to be safe in big air. You know, it's not because you left uh, on the plus 12 meter per second in the Owens that you should do your first flight after three months, not, not where you're not be flying in the same condition. Huh? But he, he, he does even better. So when he's not, if he's not current, if he's not been flying for a while, he puts away his fusion and he takes out his old uh, high B mm, and he goes right. with his kibu and he's, yeah, so, I, th I thought that was, like, that's, that's great. And I'm, uh, but uh, it's again, another way, but another reason why people step up all uh, often and, and too early and too soon is uh, their glider's still in good condition and now they can sell it and make a big chunk of money to put into the ah, new machine you know and yeah. so uh, the thing is if you flew if the if if this is obviously not for everybody there's like people that again have cross-referencing from previous sports they learn fast they go fast to it and they they got skills and some talent you know so it's not for everybody what i'm trying to say but if your glider is given let's say for 600 hours okay and now you flew 150 hours and you want to sell it because it's still in good condition so you can get the next step up well, probably you're 450 hours short to be ready for the next one. Yeah. yeah Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, I like, I like the hours too. That's about right. I think, I, I think the, and the number of hours can be really dangerous because every hour is different. You know, it really yeah. depends. Are you, are you rich soaring? Are you doing SIV? Are you doing acro? Are you thermaling and the Owens? You know, I mean, there's, there's a huge spread there. But what it does come down to is, I think the number of hours, even if they're good hours, you know, I'm talking thermaling and exceed that kind of hours where you're really learning, they need to be, I think we're very average <laughs> and not very skilled until that number is massive, way higher yeah. than, than we have traditionally said, you know, there's, there's no, you know, oh, at a hundred hours or 250 hours, man, you kind of suck until you're in the thousands. No, and how, how close they are. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. hundred, I remember, I mean, again, I, I lost my, my, my brain into this, like you did. And a lot of my friends did. And uh, I, I, you, I stopped everything, quit everything else and just went down at first into it single-minded like a like a maniac person and <laughs> i was probably close to a thousand hours in less than two years you know but yeah. it, it was like seven hours a day all the time if it's not eight hours a day ten hours a day it's like learn how to pee in the air with the before i even learned like that there was a p-tube available now i know now i know <laughs> um but but most people don't have that they, they can't quit their job they're already in the responsible adults <laughs> with bills yeah. a family and so uh, i was like when you said how many hours you have well i have 150 hours how many years you've been flying well i'll be flying 70 okay oh okay 
Yeah, right, so right. Yeah, there's that too. There's that too. How how current yeah. are the hours? And I mean, I hope this isn't coming across as preachy. I, I think it's just, you know, I, I think it's just what I'm getting from this part of the conversation is, you know, humility is really important. It, it's important for us to be humble and I dig it. I dig it when the when the pilots on the bees just kick ass. And that's yeah. that's really sexy. And I, I think that that's you know it's something to be rewarded, applauded, um, pushed more. I guess. Yeah. Um, tell me about risk homeostasis. You and I had a, kind of a fun conversation out in California about that. You know, safe, safest. Um, you give a good talk. Yeah. So. That's that's another one that, that the same guy Tony Spilling talked about it, and I, it's like I I had my first my first uh, kind of uh, experience with it um, on a on a, uh, I wasn't paragliding, I was bike riding with Mitch, with Mitch Riley, and um, so me and Mitch we used to live together in Nepal, and um, every morning at five a.m. in the dark uh, we were. <laughs> meeting in front of my house like the first person I like my, my wife was still sleeping I would go down the stair with my bike my bike on the shoulder and Mitch was there in the dark smiling super excited with we both had shovels like foldable <laughs> shovels in our backpack with our, in our hydration pack and we would climb up the mountain Sarankot stop in the middle build jumps and keep climbing and build another jump and keep climbing and then go down like maniac you know and uh, we used to do that like all, every morning, basically, but well, probably not the jump building, but every morning we were going uh, bike riding in the dark and um, where I was uh, pushing myself, uh, risking to get a heart, heart attack to try to fall Mitch uphill. And then um, sometimes it was the opposite downhill, but yeah, imagine trying to fall Mitch Riley on, on a bike ride and it's going uphill. It's just like, insane but um not so now i moved to the u.s and uh, moved to california and here i am with mitch on top of this beautiful trail up here in santa barbara i don't know if it was sunny cedar or probably uh romero canyon but let's go let, let's cut it short so i look at mitch and i'm like i have a full face helmet okay my downhill bike i have elbow uh knee protection probably had even a neck brace or something you know i was fully covered you know and i was ready to send it to go as hard as possible you know and i look and i turn my head and mitch is next to me big smile on his face he's wearing a helmet obviously he was already training for the exile and i look at him and he's like to me naked I'm like mm -hmm. i mean yeah yeah obviously he's not he's, he's wearing shorts and but he has no protection and i'm like Dude, why are you not wearing any protection? And Mitch goes, well, because if I do, then I feel safe. I'll go faster. And that's when I crash and get her. I'm like, huh, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's kind of like what risk homeostasis is all about. You know, all the studies out there, then you, you can Google, you can Google risk homeostasis, you'll find them. most of the, stu the studies are on, on, on autos, like on like, um, automobile drivers and but then if you google risk homeostasis in aviation you get some really interesting article and basically it's like all studies show that that if 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 you tell a driver that you disable the airbag and the abs and and you cut their seatbelt off immediately they'll start driving in a safer way okay 
the ways that's the example that's there's another interesting example is the, the the Cirrus plane. You know, probably the Cirrus plane is the first one that came out with the parachute and all those safety feature. You know, it was the first in the fleet with all those incredible safety feature. And then I don't know if it was a year or two later they conducted the study and they realized that the, the that the numbers were not better, mm. uh, were worse. So mm. this is how in a way how fucked up we are. The more we we let ourselves think that we are safe because we we're driving, flying something safer, the more reckless we become. You know? So this is the and Alex Roby, the other end of the pendulum that he talked about. You know that, that he he made a pretty solid argument that, and this is going against wing choice, of course, but he made a pretty solid argument for the the safest wing for him to fly is an Enzo. You know he 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 doesn't want. Pilots that think passive safety is going to save them, they're not right for this sport because they're relying on something other than themselves. And we exactly. all have to be pilots in command. And we've got to, you know, like you, like I think you're going to say, uh, and Malin talked about it, you know, there are situations where a low NB can get in a really bad scenario. And, uh, yeah, this this reliance on passive safety is dangerous. So that's what it is. Yeah. It is, and it's been in a way uh, pushed by the industry. If you look at it, the, the, the advertisement, and says, that's that's what I think we should change. We should try to be this more is vocal a safe about it. Wing. This is a safe. Yeah, wing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you saw me flying. I fly a Blackout Seventeen. It's a U-turn glider. It's a it's it's an acro glider. I love that machine. Okay, it's just an incredible glider. My riser bag that glider says safe and fun <laughs> so a blackout you, you, exactly <laughs> you know i give it to to 10 students and probably eight out of 10 will crash on takeoff and landing and and and, yeah. and but at the i'm i'm the same the one you were saying before i need to i'm safer when i fly a xeno a two-liner on a uh in rowdy condition on bar then if I fly a little B, because yeah. because again, all this safety, this passive safety thing. Yes, the gliders are getting better, but if we do start relying, like you say, relinquishing responsibility on this piece of plastic, mm. uh, that then we're we're done, we're done. Mm. What Miles says, I agree. I, I I've been saying this for years. And nay, it's not safe. It's safe her. Uh, I want. I'm trying slowly to try to like not use the word safe anymore. Mm-hmm. And I realize that sometimes I use it. That's yeah. safer. The safer is correct. Okay. But it's not safe. There's nothing safe about what we do. Mm-hmm. And the sooner you realize that, probably the, the sooner you'll start treating this as aviation and with the right amount of respect that is due for it. You know, mm-hmm. I was we were I like joking that. at the clinic and say, I want to make a t shirt that says TIA. And this, this is aviation. Then we became TIFA because we. We throw an F in there because to make it more fun, you know, people will yeah. like the t-shirt better, you know, if you, <laughs> if you throw an F in there once in a while, but, 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 but yeah, so we should, we should probably like, oh, this is the safest car that we have, this is safe. Oh, you're flying a low beat. Oh, this is safe. Here's your bag. No, 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 it's, that's, that's not, it's not. And that's risk homeostasis, you know, and, and the, the other one is another aspect of risk homeostasis that it's called build up risk homeostasis. 
So what is build up risk of mistakes? Is when, uh, for example, you, you're flying the XL, okay? Well, you're training for the XL and you're over in front of a, a place, a spot where you would like to top land, but you see that it's a sketchy one and it's a dangerous one. And you're like, oh, that's dangerous. But at one point you decide to go for it and you somehow you manage to put it down. And you boom, done. You top landed. You're not injured. You got away with it. Okay. The next time around, when you fly in front of that place, when you look at it, you won't see as sketchy, as dangerous as the first time because right. you got away with it. Yeah. You know. So that's build up risk of mistake. Another example I can give you is the acropilot that is doing waga and it's like doing big wing over very close to the cliff, very close to the ground. And then suddenly with his harness, he does a passage where he brings some gravel off the ridge, you know, but doesn't get hurt, huh? no injury, gets away with it. And the other thing that gets in the way is that when you do experience something like that instead of go on landing and and put your hand between your uh, between your hands and say Fuck, what did i do i could break my back i could kill myself doing that you actually get a nice squirt of dopamine and a yeah. buzz of excitement yeah. if you remember when we were you remember when you were giving me we were on skyport logan was there you were giving me uh, you were working on my phone. You gave me this um, option on Fly Sky High to see the the airspace mm-hmm. horizontal. That, mm-hmm. by the way, well, that was awesome. Thank you because I, I really love it. And um, in uh, on the side, when you were busy doing that, and I was watching what you were doing, this this pilot taking off forward, he gets deflation on the right, deflation on the left, loses control of his wing. Logan's in, Logan is in the background screaming, "Target! Target! Target!" He managed to jump off, take off, pump, boom, pump, everything is open. He flies away and he goes, Yoo-hoo! well, that's exactly that buzz of excitement that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So that, Cele- cele- that, celebrating uh, less than mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's built up risk of your state, you know, I, sure. I, 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 I mean, it's, and so now once we know things like that, okay. And, and we experience again, that kind of situation Mm. maybe we don't have to go and punish ourselves and go and land in a good flying day and put and sit on the rock with your hand with your head between your hands but take a note a mental note and when you land think about it yeah you know to avoid that build up i had i had an incident i don't even know if i ever told anybody about it it was the very last day of the sierra uh, we did this thing called surfing the Sierras. It was a, my first big bivy. It was from Waltz up to the Oregon border and Antoine Laurens and Nick Grease and Eric Reed and uh, Oriel Fernandez, all these pilots that were just Brad Sander, all way above my level. And I was just a kid in a candy store with these guys. It was just, I was, it was amazing. And, and as the expedition went on, you know, Brad got hurt and Oriole saw a bear and got freaked out. And, you know, so we, it, it thins out as we, as we head North. And at the end, it's, it's just Antoine and Eric Reed and I, and it was really stable. It was October. It was getting it was very into the season. And I, I can't remember where they were, they were, but I was trying to dig out. It was really light and, and, uh, but I was still a pretty new pilot. This is 2012. So I've been flying six, seven years at that point. And, uh, I made the mistake of turning too tight to the hill. And, and in the back end of the turn, 
hit a bunch of sink and I had that nightmare scenario where suddenly I was, you know, a lot of energy and going to pound right into the hill. And I went, I landed, crashed right in between two big boulders. You know, I mean, if I'd hit the boulder on one side or the other side, it would have been game over. Or Did you spin really, the glider? Really and No, no, I was just spiraling. I mean, I was basically just circling to, in this thermal, but on the backside of the thermal, I, I hit more sink than I was expecting to. So instead of doing figure eights, instead of doing what you learn and what you teach and what you should have done, you know, oh, I'm with the big boys now. And, uh, and I, I crashed, hit the ground. I was so embarrassed. I just, oh my God, I was so embarrassed and just couldn't believe that I'd done it. And I don't think, I don't think I told those guys, but it was, but it was the shot of adrenaline was real. It was like, whoa, I got away with it. You know, only because I was on the ground that I, I got to think about it. I got to think, wow, that was incredibly stupid. That forced you to, yeah. Yeah. And for years after that, I didn't, I was so careful about turning close to the hill. You know, it was really one of those things where if you would have maybe hear, even spun your glider and, oh. and fly away from it, you would have gone maybe to, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> that was and great. Nailed that. You know, so, yeah, exactly. It was, it was, uh, it was a real wake up call. nothing behind me. to learn with, yeah, from. Sorry. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, like, like Jeff Shapiro always talks about, it was a, it was a, an inexpensive mistake, you know, and we yeah. need those. Those are important uh, to get, you got to get some inexpensive mistakes because you learn it and you go, that makes sense, you know, but yeah. how many people have pounded really hard doing that, you know, in, in all these, in all the years, a lot, a lot of people have done that and, you know, and you don't walk away from it. And, you know, so I, I got lucky and, uh, but yeah, it's that, that it, it was definitely that, you know, Ooh, I got away with that. You know, we, we talk about it a lot in SIV, um, after the, the spin briefing, because in your case you didn't, but, um, and probably most, uh, most cases end it's, it's, uh, end up in an accidental spin. Cause you, again, you're supposed to do figure eight the instructor mm -hmm. told you that at the beginning you should do figure eight until you clear the ridge and then you can do your 360. But then one day, bam, you think you got it, and now you do your first turn towards the ridge, and you're down when you get pushed towards. You see the the terrain coming fast, and now you try to turn away from it, then go more on the brake, more on the brake, and you end up spinning the glider. So that's mm -hmm. that's one of the more most common uh, accidental spinning paragliding. One is when you're tourmaline, but that's not really common. The, 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 I think the most frequent one is yeah. that scenario. Totally. That's why I asked you if you spun it. And, yeah. yeah, Dylan, tell me about this kind of ties into what we were talking about before, but the con well with instruction and, and instructors at varying levels, but tell me about the conflict of interest in the system. And I don't, I don't know that if you can speak to it too in other countries, is it, is it universal or is it? No, it's, 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 it's not. There are some places where it's not like this and in aviation, I think in general, it's, it's never like this in other branches of it. Um, but Define it first. I, I mean, so yeah, it's, so, but first I want to say that I'm, I don't want, I'm not judging or pointing finger or attacking anybody. I think there's a system that it's, it's like this, and I'm not saying that the people that are doing it are responsible for it, or they created to kind of get some, some kind of advantage out of it. I think it's weird when I look at a system that 
allows the same uh, person that sells you your know, gears, uh, glider, harness, reserve, instrument, whatever, you know, and, and I sell gear too. I'm, 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 I'm a deal. to um, release to give you your ratings. Mm, yeah. I don't think. I don't think that makes any sense, you know. So I gave you an example. I mean, so what if you go to a Ford dealership and the same guy that you buy an eighty-five thousand dollars truck from gives you your license, your driving license? I mean, that's that that, that the road will turn into a shit show, you know. Yeah. And again, it's not to point a finger, it's not to judge anybody or attack anybody, but I think it's something that in the future, with time, okay, should be addressed, you know. And uh, I think in Italy, when I start, so basically, what in other country, what you do, you you go into school, and your instructor will say you will sell you your gears, will teach you how to fly, will even prepare prepare you uh, for the exam. So they will go through the exam with you, but then you have to travel to a neighboring region or state uh, to do your exam with um, with a commission or examiner. Yeah, oh, okay. like few instructors that are being hired and paid from from the federation. So the local yushba let's say mm -hmm. okay and they don't know you and that's where you do your exam you know and, uh, brilliant yeah that's and brilliant. uh again i know that in a situation where we are uh it's all like hey it's already difficult like this we don't have pilots we don't have instructors and it's it's just like out of convenience that we we're doing what we're doing the way we're doing it but again we this is a young nation and if others did better, we should do better than them. Yeah. You know, because looking at them, we can take their system. Huh? Uh, they start to start with, we, we, you can do a copy and paste, you know, and yeah. then make it better, you know, because that's, that's what younger generations are supposed to do. That's, that's improve. It's, yeah, it's our duty to do that. Dylan, but, you're a fan of, you're a fan of flow. And Mihai, Chicksett Mihai, and you and I have had some great talks about about psychology and flow state. Uh, you're incorporating psychology now into your courses as well, which I think is kind of nouveau and fun and uh, and important. Let's 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 touch on that, and then I wanted to end on your recent reserve toss that you had because I think that was. <laughs> The, the, yeah. that was a that was a good there's some good takeaways there yeah yeah so yeah we're going to probably scare people away from the clinics they're going to say what this dude instead of telling me to teach me how to pull strings he's going to keep me there and he's going to start talking about psychology yeah well yeah so if you're about to come to a clinic yeah <laughs> get ready for that there's going to be a few hours where we do talk about that we talk about the seizure making process we talk about dealing with fear and power gliding we talk we touch the like prepare this new talk about flow and uh, safe in, uh, in regards to safety recently and i try to throw it out there um, it all actually started with you with your podcast <laughs> and it's a couple of years ago i think um I didn't. I didn't. I didn't used to uh, listen to podcasts. As you know, I lived probably almost like eight years in Africa, probably eight to ten years in Africa, and seven years in Nepal. Of never a good internet connection. I didn't even know what podcast is. Logan and Chris Garcia 
made a lot of fun of me. Oh, Dylan's disco- just discovered podcasts. Like, well, yeah. So, but when I did, uh, and especially the good ones, like Logan said, at the turn of oh yeah, yeah, listen to Gavin and listen to to the episode with Adele. You know, yeah, and that's, that's the first. Yeah, that was that was insane. That was really good. And she mentioned Chicks and Mihai, Mihai, Chicks and Mihai, and, and Flo. I didn't immediately like the research on it. Uh, I remember one day I was driving home, listening to the TED Talk, and there he was. Him, Mihai, Chicks and Mihai. And I was like, wow. And I kind of like, wow, this, this, this stuff is really cool. So I bought the book, read the book, and that's where it all started. That's what I realized that what I was doing, I was... Uh, I was always sold out uh, six months in advance. We had like a lot, like good success with the school. Everything was going great, but I suddenly wasn't happy anymore with the way I was doing it. I'm like, I cannot, I, I thought it was just like, it was uh, limiting. It was like, a, I needed to do more. I needed to keep changing. I needed to keep learning something new. I needed to keep throwing new stuff into the mix and because uh, I hold that to my students, you know, it's not, you can't just have a, I was never, uh, uh, an, uh, we were never an SIV checklist kind of thing. And uh, probably, you know, that I always start my Thursday briefing and say, this is not a checklist. Nobody should come here and expect to have to follow a program. Okay. It's not you coming in and adapt to the class. It's actually the, the course, the training that will have to grow around you, who you are, your pace, your rhythm, your skills and your comfort zone. You know? and, and that's what I tried to do. But still, that was not enough. And so I started studying more and more and more. And, and podcasts and pieces of your show and pieces of Judy and articles and, uh, and which thanks to citation in the show. And I put together more talks and, and start talking more and more about psychology. Because I think we hear a lot that, the park lining is it's it's more of a mental sport than a than sure. a physical sport then the, the reality it's 100 percent neuron i mean it's all that's <laughs> uh, sodium going in and potassium coming out from those pumps i mean it's, it's mental physical it's the, the reality is 100 percent neuron there's no physical or mental but it's true that we hear that a lot but we don't talk about it enough uh, we don't encourage students to dig into it, you know, and some people, some people do like Mitch does. Mitch is always like, Mitch is into a lot. And I heard him many times, like, uh, Logan will do it too, obviously. And, um, but probably not all instructor, you know, they don't. So why are we saying that it's such a men- that is mostly a mental sport and, and not a physical sport if we don't encourage people to, to, to dig into it a little more. Recently, the last couple couple of clinics I did at the beginning, so students, before they come to a, to a clinic, they fill up this form uh, uh, where they, this, they put down their experience, their glider, color, size, uh, reserve, it was a repack, uh, um, and at the end, what do you expect from your SIV? What would you like to um, get out of it? You know, And they're all like, oh, I want to become a safer pilot, an active pilot, I want to get to know my glider. Huh? But no one, no one, and this is what I've been telling my students, no one ever mentioned, uh, I'd like to know myself under this kind of condition, the pressure and stress. And because, and, um, again, the three, the three main components, I mean, we fly um, 
one is the glider, two is the harness, and the third one is this us, our brain, the brackets. This, uh, and so I think the basic understanding of the human mind and the way it works is can go a long way when, when it comes down to paragliding. And we should encourage all our students to... At the end of the clinic, I put in the in the group chat that they use the before before the clinic to carpool, share campsite. I always post at least four or five books and articles and podcasts, and then to encourage them to like keep digging into what we just scratched the surface from. Uh, let's put those uh, in the, the let's class. put those what you suggest and all those in the show notes. And I, I remember from the talks that there that's a talk in itself. We don't have the time to really dig into all that now, but. I would, I would say the same. I mean, I just got to experience it in the X Alps, you know, the, the, the physical output is insane, but you know, how you do well in that race is, is between your two ears and, um, you know, for sure. And so, yeah, that, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll put, we'll add a bunch of stuff to the show notes from that. Yeah, we can, we can put those articles in the, in the, and books. The, the, the only brief thing that if, if you still have time uh, that, yeah, that I want to mention about flow, because so, oftentimes we, we hear talking, people talking about flow and the zone, but it's mostly related to um, paragliding performance op- optimization. Okay. It's never, and what I, what I, after I'm not done studying it again, obviously I want to read more and more and more. I started writing down, uh, and it's a talk that again I I, I'm, I started using on DSIV, the relation between the being in the flow state and safety. Uh, are we safer in flow than when we're not? And uh, so not just like we we're not just like performing skyrocketing in the shortcut to mastery and uh, and and all the advantage from this this the, the, from the state, but like are we safer when we are in flow? And I think yes, we are. We're not just like we're not we're not just like increasing our performance. We're not just like improving our performance. We are safer. Sure, you know, and so. Obviously, when you talk to people, to students, they don't have much experience and they're still, they're still in this like small bubble. Huh? There's their sphere of understanding going back to the, the, the young pilot that still doesn't speak the language. And, you know, like we often make the mistake. We tell people, oh, you have to look around. You should look for a sign for birds. Uh, and sometimes we don't stop and think, is he ready for that? Because, you know, like when you start driving a car, you need to think, oh, uh, especially in Europe with the stick, you need to drink clash, brake, gas, uh, gear, you know, and turning signals and stuff. In the beginning, it's And you're really lucky if you can see the pedestrian crossing. You're really lucky if you don't kill someone in the first few months, you know. Then it becomes like muscle memory, and now you can still look around, you can still kind of multitask while you're driving whatever same for a paragliding pilot at the beginning you you still have to think look lean break when you want to turn you know you still hear the voice of your instructor saying that and so when you tell a pilot to to look for birds when they're their bubble their sphere of understanding is so small it will expand with time and experience and they'll be able to see the bird to see the butterfly trapping a term and the thermal they'll see the other pilots climbing faster than that but at the beginning when we tell them that again we move that bar too fast and now we might put them in a position where everything becomes overwhelming and therefore dangerous you know mm-hmm. um that this being being i i think well it's i guess it's a long one that the flow disc. We'll have a discussion about for another time. It is, and uh, 
I know you're pro- fascinating you're, subject. It really, it truly yeah, oh, is. Yeah. There's so many books and stuff on it, and they got the flow lab and everything else. Dylan, oh, last yeah. last one that I want to touch on is uh, the takeaway from your reserve toss in Santa Barbara this spring. That was more, not even the toss and all that. That was that ended up being exciting, but benign. It was more the reason for it. Uh, I think is is a great. You know, I've incorporated this in my own life. It was that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think this. I hope there's something to learn from from that. And even if all my friends still making fun of me for for that, but so um, I was flying uh, um, uh, bef- before I started flying, I, I guess. So with Maria, my wife, um, we have uh, we set we did set some, some rules when it comes to the flying. If I'm flying, and one of them is. Um, the phone call so if she calls me i have my phone on my flight deck like everybody else and i and i use it also as an instrument with others and stuff but if she calls me and i'm flying i will answer the phone and if i don't answer she knows that i'm flying she doesn't call me again unless it's an emergency okay so if something happened to her or the kid then she'll call me again and if i see the phone ringing the second time now i know it's an emergency and i have to answer and deal with it so that day she drove me up takeoff with the kids in the car and um and i was there with garcia we got to take off it was not really flyable yet it was hot and uh she decided to leave because we said that we were probably we were probably gonna have to wait an hour or 10 minutes we don't know so she left now she's driving down the mountain this windy road with the kids 10 minutes later probably we're in the air Good cycle, boom, boom, you know how that works, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not working, it's not working, and boom, suddenly it works, and everybody's like, bam, 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 let's get out, we want to go as far as possible. So, so now I'm flying, and we climb above the ridge, we start going towards the back, and uh, and I'm following Chris, Chris is in front of me, and I see he's, fly- he's also flying into Lion Air Mater, and he's going through some pretty good tur- turbulence, you know? He's glad it's kind of all over the place, and it keeps going and goes through it. And I know that I'm going to have to deal with the same thing. So I'm full bar, all my bees, and the phone goes off. The phone goes off the first time. I look down, I see it's Maria. And um, I don't answer, obviously, because I'm in rough, rough air. You know? It stopped ringing and uh, immediately started ringing again. Okay. So that's when I, I forgot everything I teach everything I preach or teach or whatever. And I stayed on bar. I didn't, I didn't release my bar. I just let go of the, of the bees. I had buried the gloves on. I was not using obviously because it was not that cold yet, but I, I could not swipe the phone open to answer. Now in my head, she's driving down the mountain with the kids in a windy road. All those crazy images are starting to like, like going on going on in my head and i managed to take out my gloves and i answered the phone and when i answered the phone i'm like what, what happened and and she said your inrich is not on so uh, i go oh, okay and i'm like fuck you know so i hang up the phone put it back on the put it back on the um, on the flight deck and the second I, I put stick it to the Velcro, I lost probably 70% of the glider one. And I'm still in full bar. So I'm in rough air on the Xeno, full bar, lost the 70%, big crevasse, started going straight into an auto. 
and I'm not that high. I don't know if I'm like, I don't know how high am I, I am. Oh, thousand probably friend. I started trying to recover the auto. It was a big one. So I brought it out of an auto rotation the first time and immediately went straight back into it. And that's when I saw the ground coming and coming fast. So I grabbed the, I tossed the first one. He went in, into the line. Uh, even if I toss really hard and the second one open and, and saves me basically. So with that one as again, we all have, we all, it's, it's difficult when we do stuff and like, like what we do is it's tough on our partners. It's tough on people we love. And, and then again, this year we had again, accident and we lost people that we love, people that we know, people that we just heard about. So when you're married to someone, I guess, and you have kids with him, knowing that he flies and he can die every time he does this thing, it's normal to be anxious and and struggle with it. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's very hard, and uh, and sometimes um, our partners and end up pouring that anxiety into us. Maybe even before we fly, and I think that's that's toxic. I know we can do everything to try to understand and to be there and talk about it, but I guess for that one too, there's a time and a place. It should never be the even the night before a big flight. Uh, that's not the time and the place to talk about um, uh, anxiety and let it mm. pour into us right before a big flight or on your way to take off even more and. And so when we do set certain rules, this, again, this is aviation. Those rules are there to keep us safe. You know, I, I remember blaming Maria. I mean, I, was, I wasn't blaming Maria. I was pissed. I probably, yeah. yeah, I did blame Maria, actually. I did. And it's stupid because I should have just not answered the phone right there. I should have got off bar, spiraled down, top land, or put myself in a safer position, answer the phone. And then get really mad because now my flight was over. <laughs> but that would have been the right reaction, you know, instead mm. of like, I lost it. I lost the idea that something happened to my kids and my wife. I, I, I my brain stopped working and yeah. I just dropped everything except for the bar and that, and I, and I got in serious trouble. So, I mean, again, in, in another, I mean, I guess this is blatantly obvious, but just to make sure it gets pointed out is it's also really good to have a very specific rule about very specific things. You, you had the rule, it got broken and it had consequences. Um, and it's, you know, and it was, she just loves you and you're worried about her and it's, you know, it was all totally innocent, but it was, I'm sure led to a conversation oh, yeah, like, Hey, we have to have these rules because they're important. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't have that rule with my wife. Uh, you know, I, I didn't even think about that. That's a real, but it's a really good rule. It's a really, it, it really makes sense. And, and it, the other thing you just mentioned that I hadn't thought about the first time around was, you know, missing a big flight, who gives a shit? We've got a million opportunities exactly. for that, you know? And exactly. I mean, I actually did that in the 2019 race to my great detriment. You know, all I had to do, I took off without my jacket and my stuff because Ben and I were going to go fly over 2k to another hill and start there i launched and it was on we didn't think it was going to be on and i ended up freezing to death and blowing my flight all i had to do was land i mean all i had to do was just top land right where he was get my stuff and take off again i've lost two minutes you know it's no big deal um yeah so i mean it's it's good to 
think about, okay, well, this might take a little bit longer, but what's the safe way to play this here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, in that in that position was difficult, and even, even it, yeah, it, and it was civilians. Actually, Maria said that she didn't know I was flying, and yeah. which, like at the beginning, I was like, "What do you mean you didn't know I was flying? You yeah. drove me to take off." But she heard probably us saying that maybe it's, oh, it's probably going to be an hour, hour yeah. you know. So in her head, so it's, 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 it, I was not flying. And that's why even if the, maybe she thought that I, my phone was not nearby and, and I, I didn't hear a ring and maybe it was, my phone is always on silence. I never have a ring. To, yeah. I, I, you know, already I told you, so Maria is nuts. She's crazy. <laughs> and she's really crazy. And I'll, I'm, let me say this another one. one more. She, she's nuts. But she's, <laughs> but she's, but she's just, she's the most in, incredible human being. I, everything that, I, that you saw, the clinic and everything, everything, all of this exists just because of her. Mm. I'm the SAV instructor. Everything else, she it's created actually, the company. You know what? She might be nuts, but it's actually your fault. You, If you would have had your inreach <laughs> on, you would have been fine. You know, you made the mistake. It was your fucking fault. But uh, you're, yeah. not, you're not healthy. You know, she's going to listen to this. You're not healthy. Good, good. Well, you know, our our significance others are always right. Yeah. We're the ones that are wrong. Yeah. We're the ones doing this dumb sport. Dylan, I appreciate it. Your your time is awesome. You're great at what you do. Uh, I got so much out of your your training and your acro training and and watching you teach these students to go have fun in the absurdity and. Um, I uh, can't wait to come back out with you with Ben and Benny this fall and do more acro training. And, uh, and truly, cool. your training really came in handy just very short time afterwards when I had that crash here in Somali. So uh, thank you for that as well. And thank you for the debrief. And thank you for being you, dude. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. A lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, 
nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, All of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.